0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the 7th chapter and the 15th verse. The 15th verse in the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, it's important that we should bear in mind the context, so let me start reading again at verse 14. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. But I want particularly this evening uh, to deal with that 15th verse. The Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man learning letters having never learned? In other words, we are continuing... Our study of this seventh chapter of this gospel according to St. John, as it gives us a very striking and remarkable picture of the whole question, the problem of unbelief. We've been looking at it for a number of Sunday evenings, and we have seen various manifestations of this condition already. We are, of course, face to face here with the greatest tragedy that the whole world has ever known. Here is the Son of God in the world, and yet the record that is given here in this Gospel according to St. John, as we are told in the very prologue, is this. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That is the terrible tragedy. Ah, but you see, it's the tragedy of the world still. This world that is so full of trouble and care and anxiety, overwhelmed by its problems, and in spite of all the striving and the efforts, no nearer to a solution. The tragedy, the supreme tragedy is this, that everything it needs and infinitely more is being offered it in this gospel, but it doesn't believe it. It dismisses it with contempt, even as his own contemporaries dismissed the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. We've seen that his own brothers did that. Verse 5 has told us, for neither did his brethren believe on him. But here now, we are looking at him up in Jerusalem. He's gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles, he was made under the law, So he gave obedience to the commandment that called upon all male Jews to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And there, about halfway through the feast, he went into the temple and he began to teach. And uh, we are told that the Jews, and this means uh, the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees and scribes, the Sadducees, the doctors of the law, That is what the term the Jews means. It doesn't mean the common people. When the common people are meant they're called the common people. So here we are looking at these experts on religion. The people whose business it was to read and interpret the Old Testament scriptures and to teach the people in the things of God. And what we are told about them is, as we were considering last Sunday evening, that they marveled. They were astonished, astonished at uh, what he said, at his uh, teaching and at his uh, manner of teaching. Now then, this uh, begins to look hopeful, doesn't it? Here he is, he's giving uh, his teaching and they're all listening to him, and uh, that is the effect of his teaching upon them, that they marvel, filled with astonishment and amazement. I say It sounds at first as if it's going to be hopeful. But unfortunately, the whole record that we have to consider is one that tells us that it wasn't hopeful at all. For in spite of their marveling at his teaching, their whole reaction to him was entirely wrong. Now, there is something about this, I'm sure you'll all agree with me, which is almost uh, incredible. But that, you know, is the story that is given to us everywhere in the pages of the four Gospels. Take that example which I read at the beginning out of the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, where we have him at the very beginning of his ministry. There he was, he got up in the synagogue, he read that portion of Scripture, and then he sat down and began to teach. And they all had to bear testimony to the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. Well, you say, this is going to lead to some extraordinary result. But you remember that the very people who were marveling and were amazed at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth quite soon began to be filled with fury with respect to him. They gnashed upon him with their teeth, and there they took him to the brow of a hill, and they did their utmost to push him over the brow that they might kill him. He miraculously escapes from them. But as far as they were concerned... They were filled with hatred. They were filled with wrath. They were filled with bitterness. Now, you remember what his teaching was. They had to admit themselves that there was this gracious element in it. He didn't come to condemn them. He didn't come to blast them, as it were. He came to talk about opening the eyes of the blind and setting captives free. He came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And yet, you see, that is their reaction to him. And so it continues. So it proceeded throughout his life right to the very end. Though he did nobody any harm, though he was full of good works, though he spent his time in working miracles, giving healing to people who were in need, though he spoke as never men spake, constantly you find that this is the reaction, that they murmured against him, They questioned him, they plotted together, put catch questions to him in order to trap him. Eventually they took up stones and threw at him. They plotted together that he should be put to death and they crucified him on a tree and got rid of him. Now, I I say that this is surely a subject a matter that should engage our attention. Isn't there something almost incredible about this? Why should people react like this to him? Here are people on this occasion in the temple who marvel at his teaching and yet react against him and do so with contempt. Well, now we're going to consider that together. The answer is given here in the very words that we are looking at. And I need scarcely say again that we are considering them and I'm calling your attention to them. Oh, not in a theoretical manner. We are living in such terrible and such tremendous days. We have no time merely to indulge in some theoretical or academic pursuits and interests. I say that I am calling your attention to this because we are confronted by the same position at this present hour. Every sin, every failure, every tragedy in the world is due to the fact that men and women are in the wrong relationship to God and won't listen to this blessed person. If I'm speaking to somebody at this moment, as I am, I know who is unhappy, who is conscious of defeat and failure. My dear friend, you are trouble is due to the fact that you don't listen to this person. It's this unbelief. This thing that characterized these Jews, these authorities, these religious authorities, when he was here in the world. And, and this is the point I'm making, the very reasons that operated in them are the very reasons that are operating this evening. Now, this very thing that we are looking at reminds us of a very vital principle in this matter, that the world doesn't change. And this is the root cause of so many fallacies today. That men and women think that because they're living in the 20th century that some of things are different. As we analyze these people, we shall be analyzing a typical modern man. There is no difference. There is no change at all. The things we are concerned about are things that are fundamental in human nature. And they have been true from the very dawn of civilization, ever since the fall of men. So that if we were analyzing an Old Testament case, it would be exactly the same. The principle has never changed. The form, of course, changes tremendously. People didn't talk in the time of our Lord about uh, the atom and uh, scientific knowledge. No, no, but they, they used the same principle, as I'm going to show you. It's the clothing that has changed. The principles, the facts, have not and do not change at all. Very well then, I What was the cause of the unbelief of these people? I do appeal to anybody who in in this congregation is not a Christian. You are an unbeliever. Very well. Now then, why are you an unbeliever? That's the question. Why don't you believe in the name of the Son of God? Why aren't you enjoying the blessings of Christian salvation? I'm going to be dealing with you a case. I'm going to do it objectively for you so that you can look on and see yourself as represented by these Jews. You will find that what's true of them is true of you. What are the reasons? Well, here is the first. They of course manifest it in the very thing that they say and especially in the way that they say it. The Jews marvelled saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, what are they telling us? Well, they're telling us a great deal about themselves, aren't they? You know we betray ourselves by what we say. A man hasn't gone very far in the Christian ministry before he discovers that there is no need for him to ask many questions. All he has to do is to allow people to talk. We proclaim what we are by what we say. You've only got to listen to men and women to know exactly where they stand. They betray themselves. For instance, you hear a man expressing impatience at some grand music. You're listening perhaps to your wireless and there's some great music by Beethoven or somebody. And somebody says, turn it off, stop that rot. You see what he's told you about himself? He didn't realize he was saying anything about himself. He thought he was giving an opinion on the music. But oh, what has he told us about himself? He's revealed himself. And the whole truth about himself, musically speaking. Well, these Jews, in making this statement, did exactly the same thing. And this is what they revealed. First of all, they revealed their prejudice. Here was our Lord teaching about the Feast of Tabernacles, expounding it, explaining it, bringing out the scriptures, drawing out their meaning, as he did so frequently. And uh, they couldn't deny the fact that there was something extraordinary about it. They marveled at him. Ah, yes. But you see, what really comes out is their prejudice. They were not really uh, concerned. Their mind's are not really open to what he's saying. Their minds are already made up. Indeed, what is so clear about them here, as it is clear about them everywhere, that it makes no difference at all what our Lord says, nor how he says it. They are determined to condemn him. They are determined to dismiss him. Uh, The result is that uh, whatever he may say, whatever he may do, they're always criticizing him. If he heals a man who has been uh, crippled, perhaps for years, they at once find some car, but he's done it on the Sabbath, they're not interested in the fact that a man has been healed. You read chapter 5 and you'll find the full account of that. They always found something to criticize. There was always something on which they could down him. They're against him, they're prejudiced. They they haven't got an open mind about him. He can't be right, therefore he must be wrong. And they're always expressing it in some shape or form. No reason is manifested. The case is never really considered at all. Never considered on its merits. Now, I just invite you to read the four Gospels. And you will find that that comes out everywhere in the attitude of these people with respect to him. Their whole mind is shut and closed. They won't listen. No evidence makes any difference. They go on repeating the same thing. It's always criticism. It's always condemnation from beginning to end. Though at times they're astonished and marvel, still nothing comes out so clearly as the prejudice Well, I mustn't keep you with this. But surely every one of us who's honest with himself or herself must admit and acknowledge that this is the simple truth. The vast majority of people who are not Christians have never even considered the case of Christianity. They started by dismissing it. They've prejudged the issue. They've never really examined it and searched it. Like these men, they turn it down before anything's happened, and then try to find reasons for their action. That's sheer prejudice. But there is another thing here, and this is the thing I would emphasize this evening. And that is, of course, their pride. And this is their essential trouble. This is the thing that rarely accounts for the prejudice. What sort of pride, do you say? Well, don't you see, it is the pride of the school's, the pride, if you like, of learning. Here they are. They listen to him, and they've got to admit that there is a phenomenon here. There is something extra that We are told that they marveled. But what they said was, How on earth is men letters, having never learned? Now, what they're really saying is this. This men, they said, uh, has no right to to any learning and to any knowledge. Why not? Well, because he didn't belong to them. He didn't belong to the schools. They, after all, were the authorities, and they'd undergone a prolonged training. They were the experts. Here, on the other hand, was a man who was a carpenter that come from nowhere, even from Nazareth. He doesn't belong to the schools. Well, how can he know anything? It's impossible that a man who doesn't belong to the school shall know anything. This is impossible. How is this man learning or letters having never learned? And so, you see, this was the thing that infuriated them constantly about him. They said, this can't be right. How can a fellow like this, this fellow, that's what they called him, this carpenter, this son of Joseph and Mary, who is this man to get up and talk in this authoritative manner? Now, they had to admit that there was an element of authority, but they say the thing's impossible. This is all wrong. How can this man know anything? He's never had the training. He's never had the learning. Now, that, you see, is the position. They had a feeling that it was an impertinence on his part to speak at all. They say... There's a type of man who has no right even to express an opinion about these things. How can such a man really know anything at all? Now, I say that this is nothing but sheer intellectual and professional pride and superiority. And I needn't keep you this evening, I'm sure, in emphasizing the fact that this is the very essence of the problem and of the trouble still today. This is the spirit that is rampant. Why, says the modern man? Science has taught us. We know. Who is this fellow that's talking about religion and about Christianity and about sin and being born again? This, this, the thing is nonsense. It's rubbish. But what can a man like that know? What can an ignoramus like this know? We know. Science teaches us. Modern knowledge is demonstrated. We, with the advance of knowledge, with our present knowledge and information, These are the terms, aren't they? You see, this is nothing but pride of knowledge. It goes by the name of intellectualism. You hear a great deal of it upon the wireless. You hear it upon your television. Have you noticed the air of superiority? Christianity is just treated with disdain. What may have been all right, they say, in centuries past, of course, when people didn't know very much. But, of course, by now, have you noticed the tone of voice in which it said? Exactly what was used. How hath this man letters having never learned? The thing is impossible. He doesn't belong, as it were, to the trade union. He's never gone to the colleges. He's never been in the places where we've been. He's never gone at the... Know- Who is this to be speaking in this way? The thing, they said, is monstrous. This fellow. Sheer pride of intellect, you see. It's all done in terms of some supposed knowledge and learning and training. And nobody has a right to open his mouth unless he has this great knowledge, this vast learning. And the idea, therefore, of some simple men being able to testify to his knowledge of God and of sins forgiven is looked upon with contempt. How can such a person really speak? What right has such a person uh, to speak at all? No, no, the attitude is that only the learned people know that this is a matter of learning and of knowledge, of philosophy and of understanding. Prejudice born of pride, of learning, and of position, of status. These, you see, were the academicians, as it were, of their age. And it is in exactly the same way today in terms of knowledge and learning. The university outlook, as it were, this is the thing that controls, and men and women verily believe that it is because of what they know that they are rejecting this which comes perhaps from the common people, from some ordinary person. They feel that, ipso facto, of necessity, something which can come to an ordinary, illiterate person must of necessity be wrong. Now that's pride, and that is prejudice. That was these people's trouble. But you notice what it did to them. It's very interesting to watch it as it works itself out. This pride and prejudice blinds the whole outlook And it makes these Jews behave in an utterly foolish and illogical manner. I wonder whether you'd ever noticed that when you read this passage. Prejudice, you see, is a very blinding thing. It can make a man who's got a good brain use it in a very bad manner. The greater the man's brain, the greater will be his prejudice. And though a man may have a wonderful brain as an instrument, if there is a prejudice controlling it, he'll be altogether wrong. He'll be thrice wrong. So were these people. And I say they proceed to show, by their very words and the way in which they speak, how utterly illogical and foolish a prejudiced person can be. Where do you find that? Well, I find this. You notice that they are interested in personalities rather than in truth. Had you noticed that? Our Lord had been teaching, and they marvel at the teaching, and yet, I say, they're interested more in the personality rather than in the truth. Oh, I could keep you at great length on this point. Haven't you often been engaged in religious discussions? And haven't you noticed this element coming in? You see, there's no real argument here at all. They just go for him personally. How are these men learning, having never learned? Who is this to be speaking? Now, what's that? Well, that's personalities. They're no longer discussing truth, you see. They've come down to the ad hominem argument. And they say, who are you to be speaking? Haven't you found that when you're discussing religion with people, they become a bit heated, and they lose their tempers, and they start suddenly abusing you. And then another way in which they do the same thing, of course, is they quote great names. They're not discussing the truth with you. Ah, but they say, so-and-so says this. And the whole time is spent in bandying names. But that's not discussion. It's not an argument to say that such and such a man doesn't believe this and says something different. Because you can quote names on every side, and they cancel one another out. But what I'm trying to show you is this, how this prejudice and pride renders people who are naturally able so utterly foolish and illogical. They're not dealing with the subject. They've come down to the realm of personalities. And thus you find in the world today that it's just a question of quoting names, bandying terms, calling one another's names. Even as those learned men did in Athens, you remember when the Apostle Paul preached to them. Here he is addressing a congregation of Stoics and Epicureans, the two great divisions of philosophy at that time. And here is the Apostle Paul with his gigantic mind and brain. But because, you see, he wasn't a stoic and an epicurean, uh, when they had heard of something about his teaching and had perhaps listened on the edge of the crowd, they said, well, what will this babbler say? They've already dismissed him before he's opened his mouth. He's already, in terms of their prejudice, been put out of court. They're not going to give him a fair hearing. They're abusing the men. What will this babbler say? And so you will find, as you read the history of the church throughout the centuries, that men of natural ability and understanding have continued in their unbelief because thus they're so blinded by their pride and their prejudice That they leave the matter and concentrate on the personalities. And then the other thing that becomes perfectly clear is this. That they never really faced the vital questions at all. Now what are these vital questions? Well, surely the question must be this. The first one is this. Here they are, they're in the temple, and they listen to this unknown man, as it were, who's come up from Nazareth to the feast. And here he is teaching in the temple. And they marveled at his teaching. Now surely the vital question for them should have been this. How is this man really got this learning. But you see, that's what they said. No, they didn't say that. They said it with contempt and sarcasm. What they were really saying is, this man doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no right to be speaking at all. But what they should have said was this. Now, here is a strange thing. Here is this man, but he's speaking in a most extraordinary manner. We've had to admit that we've been marveling at what he says. Now then, if they had reasoned properly, if they had used their logic, if their minds had truly come into operation, they would have said, well, now, how do we explain this man? What is really this phenomenon by which we are confronted? But they never did that at all. That was the whole essence of their failure. Instead of trying to understand who he is and what he is and how he is to be explained, they dismiss him. They put him out of court. They say he can't be right. It's impossible. A man like this who's never been trained as a Pharisee, how can he possibly speak? So they seem on the verge of investigating in the right way. They fail. They fall back. And that, my dear friends, is still the trouble. People dismiss the Lord Jesus Christ and they dismiss Christianity without really examining him and without examining the situation. Surely the questions to ask are these. How is it possible that this man should have this knowledge? He's got it, but where does it come from? Instead of dismissing him with prejudice, they should have said, he must have got it from somewhere, he hasn't had it in the schools because he's never been to them. He's never been trained as a Pharisee, he doesn't know anything about the work of a scribe, he doesn't belong to the the Sadducees, he's not a priest. And yet it's indisputable that he's got this knowledge. Well now, where has he got it from? If only they'd started reasoning like that. If only they'd come to him and said, look here, stranger, you don't belong to us, but... uh, it's quite evident to us that you've got some secret of learning and of knowledge which we can't fathom at the moment. Uh, do you mind telling us uh, how have you got this knowledge? Would you mind explaining to us? Tell us how have you arrived at this? Oh, how different the position would have been. He could have told them, but they never gave him an opportunity. They dismissed him. They derided him. They treated him with contempt. And then his authority. You see, they were aware of an authority. That was the thing that called them to Marvel. Well, what is the secret of this authority? Where is its source? How has he succeeded in speaking in this manner? No, no, they never questioned him at all. They dismissed him, you see. But he's a problem, he's an enigma. He still remains, though they go out in their blind fury. There he stands. He's taught in a way that man has never taught before. He speaks with authority, and not as the Pharisees and scribes. The common people could see that. But these great men, they were blinded. The common people heard him gladly. They detected some authority that they'd never found before. He wasn't just quoting authorities and arguing in the way that they'd been accustomed to from their teachers. Here was a man who spoke directly to the heart. He seemed to know what he was talking about. There was some strange authority in his appearance, in his whole attitude, in his eyes, in his words. And the people said, what is this? But not so, these authorities. If only they had used their reason and their logic and had investigated and had examined and likewise with his, with his power. And not only the power with which he spoke, but the power also with which he worked his miracles and cast out devils and did his mighty deeds. You see, what they did when he did these works was to snarl at him and to be annoyed and to find some way of condemning him. Oh, that they had stopped and said, Who is this man? He's only a carpenter, but look what he's doing. But they never faced the facts. They saw the dead being raised, but you see, they didn't face the fact and say, what gives him the power to do that? No, no, they said, this man's wrong, he's done it on a Sunday, or he's done it in a way that we don't think is right, and they took up their stones and threw them at him. Don't you see the blindness and the prejudice of it all? What it leads to is that the fact, the big fact, is never faced at all, and we are arguing about some little details that don't matter, and the great centralities are missed. Indeed, as our Lord said about these people one day, he said, you tithe mint and rue and anise and come in, but you forget the weightier matters of the law. You are interested in little things on the periphery. In the name of God, why don't you stand for a moment and face the big things? And this, my friend, is still the thing that men and women are not facing. Here is the phenomenon that you have to consider. Jesus of Nazareth. Have you ever tried to understand him and to explain him? Have you ever asked the right questions about him? Or have you just said, there's nothing in Christianity all played out? He was just a man, of course. Is that your attitude? Or have you really faced the facts? Here are the facts. Here is a person born in Bethlehem as a little babe. In very great poverty, born in a stable, brought up in a place called Nazareth, working with his hands as a carpenter, and doing that until he was thirty years of age, no advantages at all, no natural advantages whatsoever. Then suddenly he bursts upon the then world with his astounding teachings with his amazing miracles, with all his glorious and wonderful works, without any training, without any advantages. Read his words. How do you really explain this person? Is this just a man? You who believe in evolution, how do you explain this person who lived nearly 2,000 years ago? How do you explain him? How is such a person thrown out, as it were, with everything against him, and yet standing out supreme and alone in his teaching, baffling the greatest minds of all the ages and the centuries, and still doing so? Can you really dismiss this person? Can you really get rid of him with a contemptuous remark? Can you really get rid of him with a curse? Is Christianity to be dismissed so easily? And then look at him, I say. This person who can thus speak and teach and who has such power and such might, look at him dying upon a cross in apparent utter weakness, the one who could raise the dead dying. Look at him buried in a grave, but go and look at the grave Empty on the morning of the third day. Look at him appearing to his followers who had lost all hope and lost all heart and were absolutely crushed and defeated. Look at him putting new life into them. Look at the transformation in them. Look at them there on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Look at the Christian church coming out of it. Look at these simple artisans in the book of the Acts of the Apostles going round the world and turning it upside down. These men were ignoramuses, nothing, nobody's even less than he was. Can you explain them? Can you understand them? Have you ever tried to? Have you ever confronted the whole story of the Christian church? Can you explain the fact that this little despised small sect so quickly became a dominating force in the whole history of the world and of civilization? My dear friend, what I'm asking you is this, you see. Is this something that can be dismissed? As these people dismissed him and his teaching, and as men and women are still doing so, can't you see that it's your prejudice that is blinding you? Can't you see that it's your pride? You talk about your modern learning and knowledge, but what about this? What do you make of him? Have you ever really considered him? Have you stood before him? Have you tried to understand him? If you but did that, you'd soon come to the conclusion that there is only one way of explaining this person. This is no mere man. This is indeed the Son of God. You'd be like the soldiers who went and listened to him and came back. They'd been sent to arrest him. They came back without him. Their authorities said to them, Why haven't you brought him? They said, Never man spake like this man. You'd be like the centurion who looked at him dying upon the cross. And who burst out saying, truly, this man was the Son of God. You, like doubting Thomas, would fall at his feet and say, my Lord and my God. Where's he got his learning from? Whence his understanding Whence his ability without any training. Where's it from? He tells them himself, my doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. He's someone who's been sent into this world. He isn't of it. He's not a man. He's God. God, man. God in the flesh. I've been sent, he says. Look at me. Don't you understand me? You see, you marvel at my teaching. Well, then examine where I've got it from. Don't be prejudiced. Don't be blinded. Don't dismiss me with contempt. Don't you try to... Why don't you try to understand me? But they never did. And the tragedy of men and women in unbelief tonight is that they've never faced the question of Jesus Christ. They've never faced the story of the Christian church. Isn't it an astounding thing that there is still a church? You know, they tried to exterminate her at the very beginning. They've been doing so down the running centuries. Yes, and let me admit it, those of us who are Christians are so often such a poor lot that if it belonged to us, we'd long since have finished the Christian church. But on she goes. And there's only one explanation. It is that God, through the Holy Spirit, comes down and revives his work again. It is the church of God and not of men. Have you considered all that? How easy it is to stand with hands in one's pockets and say, Christianity's played out, nothing in it. That's what these people did. It's unintelligent, my dear friend. You may have a good brain. I'm not saying that you haven't, but I'm asking you to use it. I'm asking you not to stand back in your pride in the intellectualism of the schools and of the Bloomsbury set and the various other sets and talk down your nose, as it were, and dismiss Christianity. What do you know about it? Have you ever really examined it? Can it be truly explained? Can Jesus Christ be thus dismissed, I say? Oh, in the name of God, I beseech you. face him. Do the thing that these people didn't do. If they marvel at his teaching, well, let them follow their own marveling. Let them follow their own logic and say, come, tell us, where did you get it from? What's the secret? But as long as you're a superior person in your intellectual pride, you'll never arrive at knowledge. And that is why Paul was able to say to the Corinthians, you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty are called. Why not? Because of their mightiness. If you're too big to learn, you've got to stay in ignorance. And it's the ignorance of hell. They never faced the big question that was staring them in the face. He himself, and likewise with his teaching." They marvel at his teaching. Yes, but they're so blinded by prejudice that they don't face the teaching. They begin to be personal and they enter into personalities and they denounce him and treat him with contempt. Why didn't they face his teaching? And why don't you face his teaching, my dear friend? Why do you allow your pride to sidetrack you? When here is teaching from God confronting you, what is it? Well, it's teaching about God himself. God over all. The one he spoke of as his father and as the holy God. The God is who is of such pure eyes that he cannot look upon evil. The God whose name is hallowed You remember his prayer, the Lord's Prayer. You repeat it, yes, but I ask you to think of it. It's easy to repeat it, but have you ever thought of it? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what he taught about God. God over all, holy, whose name is to be hallowed. God who has power to cast into hell. That's what he taught about him. This holy, heavenly Father. You see, they didn't listen to that. They were so annoyed about this upstart. This man who doesn't belong to the schools. Who's he? What right does he to open his mouth? He knows nothing. He can't. They abuse him. And thus, you see, they neglect his teaching about God the Father. No man hath seen God at any time. And all they know about God is their own speculations and their misinterpretations of the Old Testament. And what you think about God is nothing but your own speculation. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. But they didn't listen. And then he taught, you see, about the spiritual character of God's law. These people thought they knew a great deal about the law of God but then he began to teach them about it and that's the Sermon on the Mount, you see. They said, oh, as long as a man doesn't actually commit murder he's all right. He's kept the commandment, thou shalt not kill. No, no, said Christ. If you call your brother a fool you've murdered him in your heart. Oh, they said, we are all right. We're very moral men. We've never committed adultery. Listen, says this teacher. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. And on he went. He took them through their own commandments, which they thought they knew so well and which they thought they'd kept so perfectly, and he begins to expound them the spiritual character of the law, the law of God. They didn't listen to that. They were interested in personalities. With their proud disdain, they said, how can this fellow teach? But he was teaching them vital truth. And then he began to tell them about themselves, men. What does he tell us about men? Well, he tells us that man is lost. The son of man, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Who is lost? Everybody's lost. You are lost. I, by nature, was lost. We're all lost. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Every man entering into the world is born in sin, shapen in iniquity. We're all sinners. He tells you that. Have you ever faced it? You who dismiss him, listen for a moment to his teaching. He tells you that you are lost and so lost that you can never find yourself nor retrieve yourself. God, he says, seeth the heart. And that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. You know, as he preached, everybody felt he was a sinner. That's why they hated him so much. Pharisees and scribes, doctors of the law, he convicted them all. Men were sinners in their hearts, however perfect they were outside. They were guilty of pride and envy and lust and desire. He says, you're all foul and wrong. Everybody's lost. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save. That which is lost He said that what we all need is not to be improved, but to be changed, that we need a new nature and a new heart. And then he went on to say that there was only one way of salvation, and that was God's way. And it was in him, he says, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what he said. That you'll never know God except you come through him. They didn't listen to all this. They were condemning him in their pride. Oh, that they had listened to the teaching that had caused them to marvel. But supremely he taught that his way of saving was by dying. The Son of Man, he says, is come not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. What he means is that you and I are in such a hopeless, lost condition that nothing but his dying for us can save us and reconcile us to God. That's what he taught. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He said he must die. He could have avoided it. He didn't. He had come to die. He had come to drink that cup. He had come to finish the work which his father had given him to do. And it involved this. Man in sin is under the wrath of God and must die. And the only way to save him is that Christ should die for him. And he came and he took man's place and he died for him upon that cross. He taught that. But they didn't listen to his teaching. Blinded by their prejudice and their pride. He said that he'd come to give men new life. I am come, he says, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He says that he's come to give them new power. He says in this very chapter, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, power and life and might. He said he'd come to give it, the very thing that a thirsty mankind needs. They didn't listen to him. He said he could keep them. Keep them from the ravages of sin. Keep them from death, the last enemy. Take them through it without their being scathed or touched. He said no man shall ever be able to pluck them out of my hand. He'll keep us, he says. He'll guide us. He'll lead us. And then he says that he'll come back and receive us unto himself. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. That's the sort of thing he taught you now. In a world like this that may be bombed to destruction, where are you going? Don't you have any concern about your eternal future? This is what he says. Let not your heart be troubled. He's gone to prepare a mansion for you. If you believe in him, in a place which can never be destroyed, beyond the reach of men, beyond the reach of hell, many mansions in my Father's house, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He taught that. He says, believe in me, come to me, give yourself to me, and I'll guard you, I'll keep you, I'll land you in the mansion. But he also taught this, that if we don't believe in him, there remains nothing for us but destruction. Oh, he taught it quite plainly. My dear friends, I'm not putting my own ideas before you. I'm repeating his own teaching. Read chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel, and there you'll find it three times over. The world is going to be judged, and he's going to judge it. Every one of us, we'll have to stand before God and give an account of what we've done in this life and in this world. There is only one way of escaping the damnation, and that is to believe in this person and to give yourself to him. If you don't, he says, you will be involved in that everlasting destruction and misery My dear friend, have you considered his teaching? Are you as a reasonable, rational, logical person any longer going on just saying nothing in Christianity? Nobody, of course, that counts, believes it any longer. I can quote you the professors that deride it on the wireless and the clever men who give the talks and who write the books. Nobody any longer believes in Christianity. Are you going on like that any longer? Don't you think it's about time you faced this person? Don't you think it's about time that you began to listen to this marvelous teaching? Such teaching as the world has never known before and has never known since. Have you really considered what this person has been telling you about him, about yourself, as well as about himself? Now forget the learning and the knowledge. Forget what all the clever people say, and what the people who belong to the schools say. This is the thing I ask you to consider. You yourself... What happens, do you think, after you die? Where are you going? Can your Bertrand Russells help you? Can all these great and clever people who belong to the schools, can they help you? Where are you going? What happens to you beyond death and the grave and in that unknown future and eternity? What happens... I say, if you don't face that, you're a fool. Because you can't evade it and can't avoid it. And then what about that moral problem of yours? That thing that you do that makes you ashamed of yourself. Can the clever people help you? Can they help themselves? Why don't you face this person and his teachings? Here is a man who can take hold of a moral wreck and turn him into a saint. Here is one who can take hold of utter weaklings and make them more than conquerors. Here is one who said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. And the publicans and the harlots drew nigh unto him, and he received them. He could do something for them. He had something to give them. The clever people have nothing. He had everything. Don't you see that it's sheer blind pride and prejudice that makes a man go on saying, There's nothing in it without ever facing it? Face him. Face the teaching. Face the thing that causes you to marvel. Be unlike these clever Jews. Humble yourself. Forget your knowledge, forget the 20th century, but face the need of your own soul in this world, in death, and as you stand before God in eternity. There is only one who can save, and it is he, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. Say that to him. And he'll save you. And you'll know that he is the Son of God. The light of the world. The Lord of life. Oh, beware of the blinding prejudice that makes fools of men. Face him. Face his teaching. Amen.